Hey everyone, welcome to a special episode of From Vendorship to Partnership. Today we're sharing a masterclass with three of Ross's former colleagues who helped build and scale the Stripe sales team. They're all leading sales at other companies now and have a ton of amazing insights to share. We're super excited to chat with Ryan O'Halloran, Director of Enterprise Sales at Airwallocks, Gerard Gonzalez, Director of U.S. Partner Sales at PayPal, and Abby Westby, Head of Platforms at Paraffin. They talk about their experience at Stripe together, tips for moving into leadership roles, and other advice for building and leading sales at startups. To learn more about this masterclass, check out the link in the description. Hope you enjoy. From Accord, this is From Vendorship to Partnership, a show where we dive into the realities of scaling B2B startups. Join our host, Ross Rich, this season on The Seller's Journey as he chats with today's top sales leaders about building winning playbooks, scaling teams, and partnering with customers. Jump into the first question here, Gerard, if you want to kick things off. What were some of the key lessons you learned while helping build the sales team at Stripe? Sure. So for the context, when I started, the sales team was six people. Two of us had come from previous sales roles, and the other four had MBAs or came from various other roles. So it was a pretty interesting mix of people. Learned a ton, especially working with non-sales folks. But a couple of things stood out to me. First is I just really understanding the ideal customer profile and sticking to that as opposed to chasing it. And I'll talk about that. I think becoming a master of the technology, especially at a startup, like not relying on SEs or other folks, that was huge for us. And then probably the last thing I think was working with other reps, splitting deals, being collaborative and not being kind of a sole hunter. So those are the kind of the three things I would talk about. Maybe just distill them a bit. I'd say the ideal customer profile, I would just say, I remember spinning my wheels on businesses that had crazy business models or big whales that I thought could bring it in, but they weren't a good fit. Once we really figured out the exact type of company that was a good fit for Stripe, we started selling at scale. And so that, that was the thing I, I would talk about. I know like Ryan and I did a lot of deals where you could quickly tell, oh, this ch- company's a chaser or it's a good fit. And, and that was a key thing for me early days. Yeah. Good learning. Let's go for a ride. Yeah, no. And I think, I think the interesting thing just about the business model is, you know, you don't really make money unless your customers are making money. Right. And so you really need to uh, spend time on the highest impact customers early on. So then that way you're, you're seeing the results, you're seeing them go live, you're able to work with them on unique use cases. Um, but then after that, I think a, a key aspect was also investing in the supporting roles earlier on. So one of the things that I think was pretty unique to Stripe was that AEs were handling the full sales cycle even to the point of integration and support while we were spinning up and kind of figuring out what we were doing as a sales org. And then once we started to build out the solutions engineering org and the implementation and the account management, it really freed up a lot of times for AEs to go back and focus on what they do best, which is sales. And that's kind of a key learning I've I've taken away from that experience is I think being able to plan when the right time is to do that and implement that can have a huge impact on the uh, future success of the business. Totally. Yeah. I like to actually go back to like G's point about chasing deals and like having people and having momentum. Like when I first came into Paraffin, you know, founder led sales were chasing a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you find the deals that have momentum and then you should replicate that. Mm -hmm. And I think that like is something people don't quite understand. You know, like sales is like dating. It's like when they're into you, they're into you. When they're not, they're not. So back (laughs) off. And like, I think again, like no one's going to buy from you the more you push it down their throat, like you just kind of want to back off. If the deal has momentum, ride the wave. 
but I think it's like a feeling and like it, it takes some iteration there. Totally. Yeah. The last note on that, I would just say after you sell them, if you chase the client and they're not a good fit for the product, <laughs> it always would come back to you. They would have technical issues. They'd be complaining and they wouldn't be a good customer for the business. So once you sell good clients who are a perfect fit for the product, they're probably going to give you referrals. There'll be a quote for your website. So early days, just sell what's a good fit is, is a huge one for me. Totally. And it's funny that, sorry, I should have mentioned this at the beginning. Like not only are we X stripes and we're joined early, it doesn't really matter, but like these are the top, top sellers, like every single year from revenue and processing. So I should have mentioned that at the start, but getting advice from like the people that I look up to most in terms of how they, how they sell. And it's funny. I just thought of that because the advice that they just said, the top reps spend the littlest amount of time or sorry, have the, the smallest pipeline. And it's so funny because when you look at dashboards and you join a sales team, you know, managers and, and regional managers of VPs, CROs are always about what's the pipeline, how, you know, how can we grow the pipeline? But repeatedly from every single seller and team that I've seen, the best reps work the fewest amount of deals because they understand the difference between a deal and someone who's actually going to buy and get value from the product and someone who's willing to talk to you. And there's a huge difference. It's not to say you're going to be rude to people and you're going to turn that down. You want to plant seeds. And like Abby said, it's not a fit now. You're only going to hurt your chances of closing that deal eventually if you don't respectfully say, hey, this is the time we should talk or give them your advice and why you felt that way. They're only going to respect that. It's not rude. You're putting them off. It's, hey, this is when I've seen people get value or these types of companies and really being prescriptive there. So I think that's a huge takeaway for folks hearing this advice. And it does take time to kind of tune that as a seller and takes repetitions, takes those one deals and lost deals. And I think it's important as you transition, as Abby mentioned, from founder-led sales to a team or even from growing the team is to make sure you're listening to these calls and pairing up with reps. What, what are the heuristics that they're seeing that they're like, you know, the person that's been there for two years is like, I'm not going to spend time on this. Like, why? Like have those pipeline meetings, be asking those questions. I think it's, yeah, huge learnings there, but I'm seeing a ton of questions here. Maybe we'll diverge from <laughs> the questions that we had before. I see everyone giggling here. What question do you think we should jump in with? Yeah, Ross, one of the ones I saw that was actually a pretty good question is how do you hire full stack AEs? Mm. And yeah. I actually don't think I don't think you hire full stack AEs. I think you hire the right people who are motivated and want to learn. And those individuals become full stack AEs. So a really good example of this is like when when I joined Stripe, I had no technical sales experience, no technical background. I didn't know what an API or an SDK or a webhook was. And I think it was you who actually said, hey, I'm heading to a general assembly class to learn these things. Do you want to come with me? And we went and we did that. And then one of the things that Stripe offered was an actual coding class where you could take it after work for a few hours. And we were able to up-level our technical sales capabilities from those engagements. And I think Stripe did a really good job early on of hiring the right people where, as Gerard mentioned, he was the only one with a sales background outside of one other person. And they were focused on hiring the people, not the role. And if you hire the right people, they'll develop into those roles and be able to be a full stack AE. Yeah. I think in the interview process, right? Like try to get a sense for how eager that person is to learn. One thing we would do early days at Stripe was, and I would always run this part, was the mock pitch. I think... I did it with all three of you guys. <laughs> yeah, I did that. Uh, here. Yeah. <laughs> but as an example, you do a mock pitch, you give, you give a really wide window of how they can do the pitch and what the outcome is. And you can tell very quickly the difference between somebody who spent 10 minutes on it and copied and pasted from the website versus somebody who spent hours researching, thinking of questions, getting creative. 
the people who do that second piece are the people who are going to come in and not just care about their sales job, but they're going to learn the product. They're going to go to other projects and they're going to take on those extra responsibilities. And that becomes the full stack AE. And those are your top performers. So try to add something into your interview process that can really test for that type of thing. Yeah, I actually like the case more than the mock pitch in terms of like gauging if someone has what we call it stripe, like mental horsepower of like or critical thinking capabilities. And like the case can be anything that's like abstract, has nothing to do with sales, but to just test how they kind of think through a problem. And I think that is like the biggest indicator is someone can understand like a complex deal cycle that is like in, in fintech at least. And like this isn't pertained to everything in terms of like SaaS sales, but specifically in terms of like products with nuance, you know, talking about integrations, APIs, like I found doing a case during an interview is, is super helpful. And it's something that I brought over to Paraffin. Yeah, I think there's a lot you can copy and paste over to other industries as well, like health tech, right? It's a heavily regulated industry. And so the same concept of like fintech being a very technical industry, um, health tech being a very regulated industry, it's like you want individuals who are learning and growing and adapting into that role. Cool. So switch gears back to a question, then we're going to hit some of these uh, back to pre-scheduled questions and we'll hit some of them coming from the audience. Something I'm really curious to hear the feedback from this team on is what would you do differently either, you know, as a rep or, you know, say that you were CRO, VP of sales, et cetera, at the time, and you can make the decisions. What are some things when we were kind of moving from maybe the first three or five reps to like 10, 20, what are some of the things that you feel like we could have done differently that would have had a really big impact on, on Stripe's growth? I won't say where this came from, but I definitely had my rounds before I left Stripe of asking the same question to a bunch of sales leaders at Stripe. So I'll just pass it along. In the beginning stages, what Stripe did really well is they hired really thoughtful people, like really thoughtful, non-sales backgrounds, like let's figure out a problem. What they didn't do well is they didn't hire enough salespeople fast enough after that. And so they kept like trying to replicate this like MBA background. But at a point when you have a scalable process, you just need hunters and you just need to fill that gap. And I think if Stripe moved to be more salesy sooner, instead of waiting until 2020, 2021, we probably could have scaled faster. And that's kind of like my hot take on becoming salesy a lot quicker at Stripe. Yeah, I think I totally agree with what was a competitive advantage at the very start. And what we're talking about with full stack quickly becomes very hard to replicate and is not necessarily what you need once you have that playbook and process and some of those things figured out. Yeah, Ryan, you were going to jump in with something there? No, I was just going to say, I, I, I agree. I think um, something we did at Stripe really well early on was the team aspect, right? Of creating a team environment. But then at some point, you want to move away from just kind of coming in, doing the nine to five with regards to the the, the hunters, and you want to incentivize people to go above and beyond. Hmm. And I think making the transition from, you know, I think early on, we were, we were basically salary reps, and then moving to commission base, and then expanding that to really being able to grow as an individual. I think, uh, along Abby's point, the, figuring out what that incentive commission structure is and figuring out what is making your top reps motivated and what is making you know the middle of the packs motivated to move up and so on and so forth. Like figuring out those key initiatives so that you can grow the team and incentivize them to continue to work. The only thing I would add that was a problem for me was I got to a point where I was overloaded with the administrative part of the job. 
So post-launch support, just reaching out, helping fix technical problems. I think as a startup, if you can solve that problem for your reps faster earlier on in your life cycle, you'll let them go sell more deals. But I think it's very common for the rep to have to do everything and be a one-man band. So if you can at least have one or two people who are onboarding the merchants or the, the customers helping with technical aspects and letting the sales reps go sell, that, that's going to make a huge difference. Totally. And a, and a challenge because you don't want to get too kind of like specific in the roles early because things are changing and you get the complexities around a new product that's transforming and you kind of need that person to drive it. But I think yeah. there are different ways of thinking about interspersing super roles, whether it's just support that you can forward to and it's the small questions that can be super responsive someone more technical, et cetera, finding out the right fit for your business, which is going to differ a ton based on the complexity of the product, who your customers are, et cetera. Yeah. I think someone, Russ asked a question kind of related to this about how to focus on getting your AEs off of that backend stuff. I think for us, it, it, it was a similar idea of creating a playbook. Find from your top reps what they do after the signing of the contract. What do you do preparing for the integration? What are the common questions? Like one of the coolest things when we use that old program, Hackpad, um, yeah. I remember there was like a 40 page document with every possible question a live customer could ask to where a dumb sales guy like me could go answer technical issues because engineers and backend folks had documented all of this. And you could just do a control F search and self-serve issues. So creating documentation and playbooks for that onboarding and post-life piece is just as important as the sales side, because then it's easier to transition into a model where you have a support team on it. Oh, I wanted to plus one though, like Google Groups there, like at Stripe, we archived mm -hmm. everything. Oh yeah. And I'm like, and I brought that here again to Paraffin because there's nothing better than a common question that you've answered in an email, you BCC the archive, anyone who spins up ever can just Google like indemnification clause, you know, pushback. And then like a response written by another AE, it's already right there. And it just helps everyone scale a lot better. So like plus one in terms of like half pack documentation, email archives, anything to learn, all of that is just like, it's, it's critical to onboarding. Totally. I would I would just say the rumor is true that for three, four years at Stripe, every single email at the company was publicly available for the business. So it's crazy <laughs> to think about, but it lasted a while. And on the sales side, it was just incredibly useful. So if you're a small startup, up the 50 people, 100 people where the privacy stuff isn't an issue yet, and you can share everything, do it. It was hugely helpful. Totally. I think that ties really well to a great question that I hear all the time, which is how are you able to manage your customers at scale? as you were growing, what platforms were most useful, keeping them engaged during the onboarding, what processes were most useful. I think we just already hit on a bunch of those, which is documentation and playbooks. And mm -hmm. I think this is something that I constantly see. And I think that we experienced at Stripe as well, as you're consistently bringing on new reps and selling to new segments and geos and customers. I think you take the top reps and either make them managers or like overloaded with work where there's not enough time to share those learnings. And that's why, you know, honestly, if you want to check out a core, that's what we're building, playbooks and collaboration space for accomplishing this. But I think what a lot of people miss is early on, the founders figured this out. Early on, the first reps have figured this out. And then the issue isn't doing know what to be successful. The issue is actually spending the time, like we're talking about now, to, to help reps find this information. Every rep wants to be successful. It's not like 
you know, there's, there's not that drive to, if you're joining, especially if you're joining an early stage company, I just don't think the information is there for everyone. So I would definitely leaning in, lean into building out documentation. I think what I see is either way too much. It's like this 40 page Google doc or notion doc that just has far too many things that a new rep is going to be overwhelmed with, or, Hey, we're going to do this later. Once we figure it's not figured out yet. Why are we going to write it down yet? We're changing our ICP or we don't know this stuff yet. Just having anything to write down and share with your company, even if you're past the first three, five reps, I think is going to make a huge difference in the ability for your team to scale and to sell more successfully and to figure out what works for other folks. So hopefully a tip to, to think about. Ross, one thing when we were creating ours, like they weren't official playbooks, but I think it was kind of conceptually the same. Yeah. We had a, I, at other startups I worked at, Free Stripe, we had scripts, like literal scripts for selling the product. So I kind of thought of it in that way, but instead of the script for selling, it was like a script for the operational side of the thing. So yeah. like, what does the customer have to do after you pitch them? Like what buttons need to be pressed? What do you need to give homework for them? And we would have that as our playbook. So like, it can be as basic as that for mm-hmm. people building a sales team is like feed your reps with like the physical steps they need to take outside of the selling. And then you give that to the customer and they can see what the process is from finance, from technical. And, and that gets the deals done way faster when you just literally tell them what they're going to do ahead of time. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think to that point, Gerard, I remember one of the things I absolutely loved was our uh, text expander uh, or using the canned response where Basically, what this was, was it was a list of exactly what Gerard was talking about. It was a list of email responses or initial comments that you would want to send to a customer that you could just do a hotkey, like XCR. And it would send over a canned response being like, hey, so glad you signed up with us. Here's the 10 things you need to do. So instead of having to rewrite that every single time, it was automating that process and taking you know, things that I learned from Abby and Gerard that went really well, and then passing those along to my customer and being able to avoid all of those questions that would come post-sales or even pre-sales in the deal process. Yeah. And I think, again, making sure you're sharing that with the whole team. It's not just like one person, like everyone knows the person that's like building this process up. How do you help scale that with the team? I think is the challenge and making sure that they're getting updated. Um, But two questions that I saw that I I think we should definitely hit in the last dozen minutes or so here. One, I'd love to hear people's processes. Maybe we combine the two actually. Thinking about going from kind of this top rep to a leadership position, as well as how did you decide where to go after Stripe, like a generational company to leaving and taking on a new role that you'd hope would be as impactful and as positive as the last one. So maybe we can go in order of, of people making the transition Gerard, the first one to make the leap. I'm just curious, you know, you were there earlier than all of us um, had an amazing experience. how did you think about moving from being that like really top team lead, the person that would spin everyone up to taking on more of a leadership position and uh, enjoying PayPal? Yeah. I mean, for me, it was natural because I always enjoyed shadowing calls, giving feedback, running trainings. Like, I think it's obvious if you enjoy that stuff, you're going to probably enjoy the move to management. The other piece is like having mentors in the space who moved up to VP levels, C levels. You do realize at some point you have to make that move off of IC and you have to rip the bandaid. I mean, everyone is aware of the common trope. Like you're probably going to make less money in the first year or two when you go from being a top sales rep to manager, but you got to think career goals. It's long-term. It's a long-term play to move up the ladder. And that's what I thought about. For me, I didn't want to continue to always being an IC. So I wanted to learn. What I was lucky to have the opportunity to the second piece 
is PayPal was in the same industry I felt comfortable with, but they presented me with a role that was a player coach. And so I would highly recommend that in that I had my own number, but also managed a team of three who all rolled up to my number as well. So there's no rules engagement issue because everyone's number was mine. So I would work whatever I could on the large side, but help all the reps that helped me keep kind of that fun sales passion I had, but I was able to start learning how to manage and get into the, that side of the house. So um, that was a big part of it, having that transition in an role. Which is definitely more common, I think, with early stage startups, right? Typically, you're hiring a head of who's both helping partner and figure out the strategy, as well as selling the deals and partnering with, with the team. So yeah, Brian, curious to hear yeah, how you thought about joining Airwallix and, uh, and moving into more of a management leadership role. Yeah, I think for me was kind of at the end of my IC career, I stopped enjoying the individual wins and enjoyed much more of the coaching and the training and the mentoring associated with onboarding new reps. And so for me, I, I get much, I feel much more of a reward when I see someone on my team succeed. And if, if that's the type of individual you are, where you really enjoy the coaching more than the, you know, individual deal, then I think it's an excellent move to move into that leadership role. Uh, similar to Gerard, the thing that, that really excited me about Airwallets was it was building a team from the ground up. So not only was I able to get in there, get my hands dirty and understand our product on a day-by-day basis, but it was really starting from zero to one and building out the team with me. And so I was moving from similar a player coach role where I was working with the reps, I was in the deal, I was helping them move it along. And now what was actually difficult for me is making that determination of when do you take a step back? When do you stop joining every single meeting handling the negotiation and when do you kind of let the reps just run with it? And that was a really hard part for me. But the most rewarding thing was seeing my reps go off, run with these deals, give me updates, and then come back and say, we signed a deal. We've moved this in. This deal has gone live. And it's been a really exciting time to see that growth. And then to answer the second part is like, I had a little bit of a of paralysis analysis where I was, you know, I didn't know what to do next. I didn't know which company to go. I knew I wanted to stay in payments. I wanted to stay in fintech. And the opportunity felt right to me because what I focused on was joining a company where I'd align with the people who were already there. So I really wanted to make sure I was surrounding myself with people who had a team-first approach, who were trying to solve a complex problem, who were building it from the ground up, and truly had a global reach as well. So that's what really excited me about the opportunity. And it's been really exciting ever since. Awesome. Yeah, it sounds like a great experience uh, so far. Cool to see all the updates. Uh... Airwalks and the team joining there. And then Abby at the, I think probably the earliest stage, leaving Stripe from, but I think staying the longest, not the longest in terms of time there, but like as Stripe got much bigger, curious to hear how you thought about leaving. I don't know how, how large was Stripe when you left and then how large was Paraffin when you joined? Oh my gosh, I think Stripe was like 6,000 people when I left. I joined at like 600 and then Paraffin is like, I was number 30. So... <laughs> But I knew it. I like, I wanted this. Like I knew I wanted to go super early stage. I like organized chaos. Like I wanted to work really hard at a startup. And what's funny is I ran the YC Stripe relationship during my last year at Stripe. And so all I did was to talk to different startups all day and actually didn't go with the YC startup, but mostly like for me, it was finding a place that like I read Paraffin's website. I understood their product. I got excited to sell their product. And like, I literally went to bed making a list in my head of everyone I'd wanted to sell Paraffin to. And that's how I knew it was like, I was excited to be there, like Mm -hmm. that I wanted to do it. And I talked to like literally a hundred startups prior to that. 
And then in terms of like sales leadership, like coaching's fun, getting the other reps, but like I'm here to solve like really big problems. And I think that's what drives me towards leadership is the bigger the problem, like the more energy I can like go after it. And you mean like, like strategically, like, like big problems in terms of like who do we sell to and like stepping up that strategically, level? Like making process more efficient, like how to make more scalable motions, like all of these problems, like yeah, that's what gets me gets me up in the morning. And like closing deals is like its own rush that we've all experienced as AEs. But like efficiency and scalability is like something I'm, I'm very excited to like get my hands, you know, in. And like it's why I joined a Series A startup. Sure. Yeah. How do you lay that foundation? So when you hire and invest a ton in your first team, making sure that you hit the numbers that uh, that you need to. Awesome. Cool. Let's look at wrapping up with some overwhelmed with the questions here. So if anyone saw one that, that really speaks to them, feel free to jump in. One, okay. One thing that I hear about all the time and I've experienced, what were the most difficult things to juggle when you first started scaling a team or when you come in as that, that leader that's also has to be hands-on in a million things? I'm curious if anything jumps to mind. I, maybe just to start, I think the balance of both, you're probably going to be the most impactful person on a deal by deal basis or decision basis. And you know, if you're going to delegate, no one on the team is going to have close to the context you have. It's not about being the smartest person or the best person there. You just have the context. And how do you start to offload that? So other people learn that. And how do you have that trust that the business outcome is still going to be fine when you're really small making those decisions while knowing that you're making that trade-off. So that's, that's kind of, I think uh, the, the most challenging thing for, for my experience going from that. One for me is uh, thinking about Stripe in particular is how do you maintain the culture of ownership and like full accountability? When we were five, six people, it was like everybody was so invested, but you get to 40, 50 sales reps, the profile of people's different personalities are different. So we did our best to try to keep incentives and, and keep excitement and try to keep building that. But I think that was one of the hardest parts. Um, so it's something to think and look ahead as the company is getting bigger is like, how do you keep that same culture and the hiring bar high without slowing yourself down? Totally. Yeah. It's hard to drive that team-based company-based winning. Well, you get to the folks that, you know, maybe more excited about just coming in, they're great reps and they care less about this stuff, but you're going to lose some of the feedback loops. You're going to lose some of the collaboration between teams and just doing some of the, the stuff that isn't necessarily on a job description. Yeah. There was a question kind of related, Ross. Somebody asked in the chat about how do you move from like salary to commission? I think it's a really interesting topic because it took us like two years, three years maybe before. So we went a long time where sales reps didn't have quotas and we didn't have commission. I think, you know, when your top reps start having massive deals and start telling you about it. I just 5X what this other person did and we got paid. I think you need to keep very close eye on the metrics that are coming out of your sales team, even when you don't have quotas or commission. And as soon as you start seeing a pretty noticeable disparity and you want to keep those top reps after two, three years, that's when you have to do it. Otherwise, like that ownership mentality will go on for a couple of years, but not if they're hitting 200, 300, 400%. So you just got to keep an eye on that metric in my mind. And don't, yeah, you don't have to wait just one thing there. Yeah. Simple answer, just do a bonus, one-time bonus or something like there's easy yeah. ways to, you don't have to figure everything out to start. Like what are the multiple liars and what are the, you know, retracted all the stuff. It's like, 
someone's crushing it, they're outsized, like they deserve that. Get, probably give them an equity bump instead because then they're going to stay longer and maybe a slight cash. Like I think just getting creative with it when you're small is, is, is also a way to look at it. But sorry, Ryan, you're going to jump in. There. No, no. Yeah. I think, I think just putting yourself in their shoes, right? It's like, if you were this individual and you were doing this, how would you feel? And sometimes it's, it's easier said than done to do that. But I think that's like a key way to figure out what the right thing to do is at that time. It's like, if you were this person and you had done this, what would you expect the outcome to be? But um, kind of uh, giving a different point to that, I think, I think something that's easier early on is building a diverse team, right? When you're 10 reps and you're thinking about it, like you are involved in that hire. But when you get up to 50 or 60, you start to step away and the hiring process starts to become automated, right? And I think it's incredibly important to make sure that you're focusing on a diverse team, not just from an individual perspective, but from the background as well. You should think about like each person should be a piece to the puzzle and each person should bring something different. So then that way you are creating this unique environment where people have different insights and different processes and they can actually bring a different view to how you're building the team and how you're scaling. Any last thoughts on that, Abby? No, I mean, I, people on this call should be warned that, you know, we were all top reps and we could probably <laughs> talk about this, how much we should have been paid for like an hour. It's all <laughs> fine. No one's, no one's complaining. Same old, guys. Same old, same old. <laughs> I think there was a question, though. This is like actually a great question uh, Annie just posted about, like, what about the reps who are making 80% hitting OTE and not motivated to hit 100%? I don't think those are the reps you want on your team. I think if you want a rep who is motivated to hit 100%, you should be hiring for the people who are not just trying to hit 100%, but also trying to build the company and be a part of that early on. So I think you should hire for the person, not the role. Hire the right people. Hire the people who are motivated, who are coming in there, not just to overachieve, but they actually want to build something and work cross-functionally. I think that's something that like, even though Gerard, Abby, Ross, all of you were incredibly good top reps every single year, you still care tremendously about the company, about the team. And that's why all of us were at Stripe for five, six plus years, because we, we absolutely loved the team. We loved what we were building and we felt a part of the company. And that, that is a huge aspect that I think you can't overlook early on. And I mean, it's probably a sign, maybe you try a 70, 30 split or something. Um, Cause you can't get rid of everyone, but like have some sort of commission in there. That way folks are seeing a bit of an upside and also feeling a little motivated to push for that extra 20% they need to get. Mm-hmm. Chris asked, what's up, Chris. Good to see you, buddy. About interview questions for a plus company building type reps. Like that was an interesting one. I mean, Abby talked about the case for me. I, I thought it interesting questions to ask are, strategic company uh, questions about how they would view the future of the company. I think see if they've thought past what they can see on the front landing page of your site and see if they can speak to the competitors in the industry, what your value props are. No, it's really hard because they don't work at the company, right? But like you can tell that extra mile person if they come into the interview and can speak strategically about a business they don't even work at. That's what I would recommend. Try to push in that type of direction. Yeah, I think one of the biggest things, like I'm a big challenger sale type person. I know someone asked about frameworks and and, and like selling strategies. Like if someone can come in and understand the business, just again, like at that level and be able to talk about what market do you think we should go into next? What Mm -hmm. product do you think maps to this thing? Like, what do you think about us either going more up market or focusing on a self-serve product led motion? Like just having that, because that's the conversation that's going to be the reason why that customer books the next call. That's the reason why you're going to not get, you know, not you're going to get 10% no-shows versus 30% no-shows with certain reps. That's the reason why 
they're going to help close and help you go market all those kind of things. It's really the business thinking. And I think, especially at an early stage company that's still figuring out the market, that you don't have this repeatable thing. Like people aren't just buying from you because they know the thing works. People want to have those types of discussions with you. They want to, they want to problem solve together. And I think that's something that I totally undervalued beforehand. And now looking back with Accord and the first reps that we've hired and the conversations that we have, I'm like, wow, like people want to solve these business problems together. They care less about learning about the product because hopefully that's online and they already have a sense of what that looks like. They're not going to buy because of the specific feature. They're going to buy because you're going to be able to solve that problem. And I think that's the kind of conversation you can test with in an interview. How creative do people, do they get excited about it? Do they like, oh, that's really interesting. Like, how am I going to solve this thing with you? Like going back and forth. And it's not about sales processes. It's not about how well you pitch and negotiate. It's just like being another human on the other side, being like, how am I going to be creative and solve this problem? I was going to say like plus 1000 there. Like I literally (laughs) bought when I got to Paraffin, Salesforce, Zoom Info, Sales Loft. And I cannot tell you how different that experience is being the buyer than the seller and how... I literally didn't buy software from another company because I just didn't like the experience I went through and they weren't helpful and it was transactional. And I almost didn't buy from one of those three for like the same thing, but I really needed the tool. <laughs> you can sell there. Yeah. That rep can sell and maybe hit their number or get close, but like you can't it wasn't get away even with that. Selling. I was like, decision made, just funnel me through this process. And it was still difficult. And it was just like, that's my biggest thing with like, I think if you guys get any inbound to anyone on this call, the intent is there. Like you just have to run a thoughtful process, have these conversations, like Ross is saying, be a human. And I guarantee you'll close like 80% of your deals. Cause that's all I'm looking for the buyer on the other side. It's nuts. It's my biggest learning of yeah. like. The bar is low. It's surprising. Yes. It's crazy. It's a little crazy. I think Abby, one thing that you bring up is the fact of like, even the deals that we've lost in our careers, like especially at Stripe, they would come back later because they had a good experience. And I think that's what people don't, don't realize all the time is like losing a deal at that time is not the worst thing in the world because if you provide them with a quality experience and you provide them with you know a hands-on service where you were truly listening to them and taking them through the buyer's journey, like even though you don't find a solution today, a year, two years from now, they may come back and say, Oh, you know, PayPal, I actually remember I had a really good experience with Gerard. Perhaps he can help me with this. And you'll be first on their list to reach out to. So like, even though if it's a loss, if you're giving them a good experience, it could be a long-term win. Well, I know we have a couple minutes left here and I'm guessing again, the sales folks, founders, other people that are on this call probably have to jump to their next set of things. But uh, this is probably one of the most engaging sessions. Really appreciate everyone's uh, questions and chats and comments. Appreciate this team, this this amazing panel, Ryan, G, Abby, for taking 45 minutes out of your day to share this with the community. And if you haven't yet, feel free to check out Accord, our company, which helps solve a lot of these problems. It's inaccord.com. And uh, yeah, hopefully this was helpful for folks and looking forward to hearing the feedback. You're listening to Accords from Vendorship to Partnership. For more sales and startup insights like this, please be sure to subscribe here or at inaccord.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening.